Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Holy is the Lord. Amen. I thought that was such an appropriate set this, this morning as we worship the Lord, reminding ourselves of the holiness of God. He is holy and we are called to be holy as well, set apart for his glory and honor. Amen. Before we get started this morning, I'm going to invite Dr. Sam Richardson up here. He is getting ready to uh, take off and go on a mission, his mission, uh, missionary journey over to Brazil. Uh, Dr. Sam has been traveling back and forth to Brazil for um, the past year and a half or so, and um, God is doing great work through him over there. And he's such an inspiration to me to see him putting his hand to the plow. Not that you're old, but I mean... You are staying the course, brother, and I really appreciate that, you know. Uh, and he, Dr. Sam is a medical doctor, and he is going over to Brazil not only to help the, the, with physical uh, medical conditions of people, but the spiritual medical conditions, which is even more important than anything. And he's going to be teaching in a um, mission school coming up this, uh, for this, t- this time as he goes over there. And um, what, what city are you in again? There you go. Alberto Tubo. Something like that. So we're going to pray for Dr. Sam. And, uh, and I wanted uh, you to get his face in your mind so that you can continue to pray for him over the, last, the next uh, several months as he is away in Brazil. He is part of our body here, and we're so blessed to have him here. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for, Pat, uh, for uh, Dr. Sam. Lord, we thank you for uh, just saving his soul first and foremost, Lord drawing him to yourself, for giving him a heart, Lord, to serve. And thank you for the gifting that you've given him, both in practical means of being able to help people medically, but, Lord, more, more so even through your spirit and the ability to help people see their need for you. We pray, God, as you take him to Brazil, Lord, on this trip that you keep him safe, you put a hedge of protection around him. Lord, that you fill him with an empowerment, Lord, to be fruitful, and the things that you would have him do there while he's in Brazil, and that you would use him mightily, Lord. That uh, you would use his hands and his mouth, Lord, and his mind to be able to reveal the greatness of who you are. You, Lord, are awesome, and you're going to use him mightily, so we just lift him to you. We ask you to anoint him with your spirit, Lord, and just send him on his way. uh, Help us to be mindful, Lord of Dr. Sam, as you would put it on our hearts, that we would continue to pray for him and for the fruitfulness of the ministry that he has there in Brazil. Thank you for those who in YWAM that he's partnering with over there, Lord. We just ask you for deeper relationships. We ask you to uh, bind the enemy from creating any kind of division, Lord, that they would be of one heart and one mind, unified to be able to accomplish your purposes. So we lift Dr. Sam to you. Keep him safe on his uh, flights there. Keep him safe on his flights home. May it be just be an uneventful time, Lord, but may it be a fruitful time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. And if you want to learn more about what Dr. Sam is doing, he'll be out in the foyer after the service, and you can talk to him, and he would be more than happy to share with you all the things that God has been doing and what he's going to do. And also, Dr. Sam is learning Portuguese, and he's been doing it for a while, and so he's, he's getting pretty good at it. Maybe if you know Portuguese, you can have a conversation with him. Maybe the Lord will give you the gift of tongues today. Who knows? He can interpret. We'll see. Hey, if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 21 this morning, Acts chapter 21, and we will be looking at verses 17 through 36 with a message entitled, The Drama Begins. Oh, 
Yay. I know that Christmas just is over, and so you're ready for another season of drama. I know. But wait a second. Christmas and drama? Family. You know. You know what I'm saying. Stand with me once you're there. Acts chapter 21. We're going to look at, begin in verse 17. Luke, writing inspired by the Spirit, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he relayed one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly, certainly hear that you have come. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts. God, you have something to say to us. We just invite you to change and transform us this morning, Lord. That you would help us to understand the reality of drama, but how we're called to navigate through it. And so, Lord, by your spirit, would you speak to us? We also ask that you prepare our hearts for communion. We're going to be reminded this morning of the great sacrifice that you've given us. So we ask you, Lord, to just have your way in us. We surrender to you now. Come by your spirit and speak to us. Through the blood of your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So let's, let's talk drama, shall we? To understand drama, we have to start with a definition. So here's a definition according to Merriam-Webster uh, relating to drama. It says it's a state, a situation, or series of events evolving, involving interesting or intense conflict of forces. Now, I think that is an incredibly lame definition of drama. Anybody else agree with me on that? What does that even mean? Like, I don't even understand that. I think it's far more than that. And so I did what any reasonable human being would do in this situation. When you look at a definition that has been written by scholars and you go, mm, I don't know about that. I went to the mothership of definitions, which is the Urban Dictionary. I know you know that. Uh, the, the Urban Dictionary is the People's Dictionary. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's sort of like Wikipedia. You get to contribute to it. So I tell you that to warn you because you never know what you're going to find on Urban Dictionary. But I did find some interesting definitions that I want to share with you relating to the word drama. The first one is by Duffy Tyler. Duffy says drama is the act of making a complete fool of yourself. Going above and beyond what a normal person would do, not being able to control your emotions, going into a state of extreme rage, willing to start a fight with your best friend just because. Apparently, Duffy has done that, and so that made it into the uh, definition of drama. Maybe you'll resonate better with Crazy Lady 800. Crazy Lady 800 says, drama is when a person creates problems for themselves, be because they're prima donnas, and then obsess over these problems uh, 
to other people, especially people with far more complicated problems. So apparently Crazy Lady 800 has a lot, she's tired of hearing your problems. So go tell your problems to somebody else. She's got more complicated problems than you. Now, I didn't write this next one. My name's not Jim. My name's Tim. I didn't write it, ladies, I promise you. Uh, but this is what Jim says drama is, something women and especially teenage girls thrive on. I didn't write it. Jim wrote it. Uh, he goes on to say, consisting of any number of situations that have an easy solution, which would bring a fairly good outcome, but these girls choose another beep, bad way to deal with it. Again, consisting of backstabbing, blackmailing, gossiping, betraying their friends, or the all-too-common, I want to break up with him, but I still love him. That totally makes sense. Th listen, I think that Merriam-Webster is completely missing the mark when it comes to definition writing. I think they should start recruiting out of the Urban Dictionary. What do you think? I, I think I, I decided, you know what, if they can do it, I could do it. So I wrote my own definition of drama. I said, drama is the emotional act of a miserable person attempting to recruit other people to join the club because misery loves company. That's the way that I see it. Drama. Hey, regardless of how you define it, drama is never fun. What I know is that anytime you get people gathered together, that being two or more, drama is going to probably be present, or at least we are poised and positioned for it. Listen, we might not be able to stop drama from happening, but we can stop it from continuing. Amen? So we have a responsibility relating to drama. Now, I, I say all that because I believe that there is this kind of theme present in the text this morning. The Apostle Paul is accustomed to drama. Everywhere he goes, he, drama shows up. It's because of the work that he's doing. He is uh, being used in such a great way by God that uh, he is an affront to the demonic. And Satan and his minions are attempting to take Paul out by creating drama wherever he goes. This would also include his coming to Jerusalem. Now, if you've been with us for any period of time the last few weeks, you know that we've been hearing over and over and over again that drama awaits Paul when he comes to Jerusalem. Paul said it in Acts 20, 23, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. In other words, Paul can expect drama when he shows up to Jerusalem. And, and, and today in our text, we find the wait is over. It's time for Paul to face the music, as it were. He's coming to Jerusalem, and he's going to face some drama. What I love about this is Paul doesn't avoid Jerusalem even though he can expect some drama. Some of you maybe avoided some people this past uh, season, you know, the, of Christmas and such because you knew that, well, they're drama. Let me tell you something, and I'm not, this isn't a blanket statement. You're, every person's situation is different, but I will tell you this. We don't avoid people or situations because drama may be present. Because it's even in those moments that God can use that in a way that we could reach people. I'm going to show you that in the text this morning. That even though drama, uh, you know, can be present in our family members, in, in maybe even in us, God can work through that if we'll let him. And I want to show you the way that we can minimize drama in this situation, how we can use it to be a, a useful tool to bring the gospel to people who need to hear it. Amen? We know that as Paul comes to Jerusalem, drama doesn't start out right away. 
uh, the first thing that we see in our text is that Paul receives a warm reception, which was probably nice. Verse 17, we had, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Paul, uh, Luke, who is writing the book of Acts, uh, Silas, maybe, all of the the people that uh, were sent with Paul, bringing the offering to the church at Jerusalem, are now with him as they come into this city. And there's also a guy by the name of Nasum that we learned about last week, that Paul met in Caesarea. Nasum had a home in Jerusalem. Paul is traveling with all of these people. He comes into Jerusalem, and it tells us here that the brothers received us gladly. Who is that speaking of? Probably a small contingency of the church in Jerusalem, maybe people that Paul knew, uh, you know, when he, when he had come previously. Uh, perhaps they're just brothers in the church that are friends with Nasum, and they're at his house. And Paul and these traveling companions go to, the, to that home. And they, regardless of who they are, what we know is how they receive him. They receive him gladly. They're glad to see him. Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem for some years now. The last time that we see Paul in Jerusalem is Acts chapter 15 when he comes to James and the elders in the church at Jerusalem and, and asks them about the Judaizers who are coming along uh, behind Paul and trying to undo his teaching about the gospel of grace. They're telling him, oh, you can believe in Jesus and all of this, but man, do you need to be circumcised? You need to follow the law and all these kinds of things. And this is what James and the brothers from Jerusalem are saying. And so... Paul and Barnabas, you know this, they, they come to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and they address this. And they ask them, hey, what's going on with uh, these kinds of things? And um, we're hearing that you say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they come for clarity. And, and this is addressed in our text later, so we'll, we'll tell you what James ends up determining, what, how he ought to respond to that and teach the Gentiles. So we'll get to that in a second. Paul is probably here in Jerusalem around the day of Pentecost. We know that was his goal. That was his aim in Acts 20, verse 16. He was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. It's likely that he made it there because we see that there are Jews from Asia in verse 27, That meaning they're probably from Ephesus. They are in Jerusalem. Why are they there? Probably to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And so Paul has probably made it, uh, you know, sometime around that uh, time frame. And uh, there are these people there. There were three feasts that all Jewish males were required to come to Jerusalem for. The Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Passover, which was the first one. 50 days later, the Feast of Pentecost. And then finally, the Feast of Booths, which you can read more about this in Exodus chapter 23, if you like. Paul has likely made it on the day of Pentecost. We also recall that Paul is coming to Jerusalem to fulfill his Nazarite vow, which we saw in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. He's rushing to Jerusalem so he can fulfill that vow, present his hair to the, uh, that he cut off in Chentria to the priests there in the temple at Jerusalem. And finally, we know Paul is coming because he has an offering for the church. So there's some reasons why he is coming to Jerusalem. They're practical, why God has called him and uh, so Paul is pressing to get there for these reasons. He's now here, and he receives a warm reception. Next, we see that Paul will give an encouraging report. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he 
related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So the following day, uh, Paul, along with Luke and all of his traveling companions, go into the leadership in Jerusalem, to the church of Jerusalem. That is, James, it's, it's stated James first, and then all of the elders were present there. It's interesting, uh, if you've been tracking along in the book of Acts, you understand the church is emerging, it's changing, it's being built. The book of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 28 are written over a period of about 30 years. And so, you know, it, during that time frame, the church started in chapter 1, and we see Jesus, you know, resurrected and instilling the gospel, um, you know, into his, and telling him about to go into the power of the Holy Spirit into the world and make his name famous. And so, you know, what we find out, though, is that the church is changing and transforming through the book of Acts. The way that the leadership worked in the church initially was Jesus gave the leadership responsibility to his apostles. And we know that the apostles were the only church leaders in the beginning. And we know uh, in Acts chapter 4, it's, it's listed when they sold their homes and gave them money, you know, for all of the people there in Jerusalem to live off of so that no one had need and such. It said they laid the offerings at the apostles' feet because they were the leadership at the time. Then we see, as we get to Acts chapter 6, the church has grown so much that it's impossible for these, for these apostles to do all of the work, to, to minister to the people effectively and still be able to preach the word and pray and all of these kinds of things. And so they add deacons to the church in Acts chapter 6. You can read that, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We don't hear the word elder actually mentioned until we get to Acts chapter 11, verse 30. I don't know how far into the church's existence that, has, that takes us, but it's been some time. What The idea is the church is evolving. It's changing. God is adding structure to the church so that the church can be um, sustainable, so that, you know, uh, it, the leaders in the church don't get totally buried under all of the work that happens. I promise you, there's more ministry than any one of us in this room can handle. And so God brings a group of people around to help. And so we find in Acts 11.30, the word elder is mentioned for the first time in the book of Acts. Why do I say this? I say this because I want you to understand that the church uh, at this period of time was still evolving, and there's a lot of things that we're going to see in the Scripture today, uh, particular to believers in Jerusalem and the fact that they were still celebrating, they were still sacrificing at the temple, they were still doing all of these things, but also to help you understand the leadership structure of the church. That's always one of the questions, right? Man, if we were just like the early church, what it, what it would be like? Well, what was the early church like? I think it was a lot like the way we are, to be honest. But there was a specific type of leadership in the church. And um, today in the church, there are three different types of leadership structures that exist. There is what's, what's called a pastor-led congregation. Uh, there is a, an elder-led congregation. And there's a congregational-led uh, churches. So these three styles exist. The question is, is which one is the most biblical? You know, how should the church be, uh, you know, organized and such? If you take our church history class that's starting uh, on Tuesday of this next week, you're going to learn, not this week, but next week, in chapter 7, you're going to learn about church governance and how 
they structured the church and all of these kinds of things. It seems that there is some flexibility in the scripture relating to this, but, um, but ultimately, I think in our text today, I think it makes it clear the way that the church was structured. Um, there are many, many people who uh, will, uh, will, they're adamant that the early church was hosted an elder-led structure uh, because we hear the word elders in such. But I think you, you see it throughout the book of Acts, at least. You see that there was one person responsible for making decisions, and there was a group of elders there also to help with all of the, all of the ministry that was happening there. Here in the church of Jerusalem, it was James. James is the brother of Jesus. He's responsible for making all of the decisions. And in fact, when, when Paul and Barnabas come to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, listen to what James says in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, relating to being circumcised and things. James made the decision. Why? Because he was responsible for the church in Ephesus, or in, in Jerusalem. There was a council of elders there for sure, and they were there to support and to minister to the people of God and support the vision that God had given uh, the, 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 el- the apostle at this time, who was James, uh, because, and that's the way it was structured. That's the way Calvary Chapel is structured. We believe in a pastor-led, uh, you know, structure of uh, ministry. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, who is the founder of Calvary Chapel, he calls it the Moses model. And uh, you can see by this illustration why it's called the Moses model. When you look back in the Old Testament, it was God who was sovereign over the nation of Israel, over the world, really, but in particular, the nation of Israel. God is the head. God calls Moses, as you know. Moses is led by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. He is God's chosen vessel, appointed by God to be his man. Then we find, we find that there are judges and priests and such appointed to help fulfill that vision and to also um, minister to the, the, the nation of Israel as a whole. So uh, our church structure is similar to that. Uh, Pastor Chuck put this, uh, this illustration together, as you can see. Uh, Jesus is the head of the church. No questions asked. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. Uh, he's the head of the church. The pastor is then led by Jesus. And the Lord would then appoint elders and deacons and a board of directors and assistant pastors and all of these kinds of people to support what God has called the pastor to do and to care for the people. There's too much ministry for one person. And so that's the way that we're structured. I don't think the elder-led congregation is unbiblical, but I think it's incredibly difficult. And you find that in, in a lot of, there's a lot of higher profile churches where you see the elder-led structure and it, and it becomes very difficult. And in fact, Pastor Chuck uh, was part of a, a denomination at one point that was elder led and he said you know to be honest I felt like a hireling like I, I, I wasn't really I didn't have the freedom to do what God called me to do I was responsible to do what these men told me to do and sometimes what God told me to do and what these men told me to do were two different things and so that's why he instituted this particular 
type of uh, church leadership, and, he th- and, it's, and it's a biblical model. What is unbiblical, I think, is the, um, the congregationally-led structure. Um, I, typically, in, in the scriptures, when you find that the congregation is making the decisions, you either get a golden calf or you get Saul for king. So I, I don't think that's a great model, personally, but... Um, you know, there seems to be some flexibility in that. If you'd like to know more about the way Calvary Chapel is structured, just because you're into that kind of stuff, then I, what I did was put a link uh, to a PDF file on our app. You go to the app, you go to more. Under there, you'll find the Calvary Chapel distinctives. And in chapter two, you can read about church govern- governance and such and how, that, how um, Pastor Chuck and the way that we see scripture relating to that. So it's free for you on there if you'd like to learn more about it. I say all that to say it was, it's a great way to introduce the structure of the church because the church is still being structured at this point. And we see this evolving. Um, we see that James is responsible for the church in Jerusalem. You know, who was the, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus? Wasn't it Paul? Uh, there were elders, certainly, in place at, at Ephesus, but here's the thing is they, they also had multiple churches in Ephesus. There wasn't, they didn't have big buildings that could host thousands of people. They had house churches where they put elders over these various different church uh, homes and they would, they would uh, pastor these churches. But ultimately, Paul was the pastor of Ephesus. And then Timothy became the pastor of Ephesus. And then Ultimately, the Apostle John, after he wrote the book of Revelation, he would come back to Ephesus and he would be the leader there. So I say all that to say it seems to be a pastor-led, you know, kind of structure in my mind. Paul is in Jerusalem. He is now going to give an account, an encouraging report of all that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And I love the way that Luke writes this because it's all about not what Paul has done, in his ministry, but it's all about what God has done in the lives of the Gentiles through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. I love that. You know, anything that is happening good in your life, and any, if God is using you in any way, shape, or form, he should get all the glory because he's doing all the work. You know that? Like he's going before you. He's going behind you. He's even correcting things that you're messing up along the way, even in the midst of being a vessel. He's doing it, and he should get the glory. And I love that Luke points it to that. Like, Paul, amazing things that God had done through the apostle Paul, but God did these things. When Paul would show up into a town and he would go into a synagogue and he'd preach the gospel, people would get saved. Why? Because Paul was a great teacher? No, because God had already gone before them. He had already revealed things. He would connect dots through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, he would be protected in cities as he would go through that. Why? God did all of these things. I tell you this to say, man, you should be testifying to the things that God is doing in your life. You should encourage the body of Christ. You should tell your brothers and sisters, man, the Lord did this and he did that and all of these kinds of things. Why? Because it's encouraging. You know, back in the day when you couldn't post everything on social media, uh, they actually had to meet one-on-one and have conversations. Do you ever, you know what that's like? You got to do that, man. You need to have lunch with Christians, and when you do that, you should sit down and talk about the things that God is doing in your life. Man, it's encouraging. I love to hear what God is doing in people's lives, and you know, hey, stop talking about the weather. What's the Lord doing in your life? There's also a built-in accountability to that, isn't there? Well, if God's not doing anything in my life, is it because God's not doing anything, or I'm not allowing him to do anything in my life? 
man, hey, share what God is doing in your life. As Paul did this one by one, in great detail, that's the idea in the Greek, that he did it one by one, he didn't miss a thing. He gave them all the detail of it. Their response is then that when they heard it, they glorified God. Notice it doesn't say they were jealous of what God was doing in Paul's ministry. That's what happens in our culture, but that's not what was happening here. They understood it was the Lord at work. When, when they went into the culture in this time frame, when the church was just being established, Christianity was literally countercultural, folks. And do you know it still is? But yet God is doing great work. These people weren't jealous of what God was doing in the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We should rejoice with each other about the things that God is doing. These guys were rejoicing. The focus, I want you to understand, was all on the Lord. And I think that's the responsibility of any, any leader in the church is to put all eyes on Jesus. It should be all eyes on Jesus. If, if the people know more about the pastor or the leaders in the church and all the things that they've done, then the focus is on the wrong place. It needs to be on the Lord. The Lord's doing everything. He should be the one to be glorified in all of these things. And that's what was happening in Jerusalem when Paul got there. But what we know is that the drama is about to start. Man, Jerusalem has a, is a toxic vibe for Christianity. And Paul's ticked some Jews off there. So he's going to experience some of this as we learn about a disturbing rumor that's being spread about the Apostle Paul. Verse 19 and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews, listen, who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. And so James and the elders, after they hear this great encouraging report from Paul, and, and they praise God together, they go, now, agenda uh, item number two. Paul, there's a disturbing rumor in Jerusalem about you. This is where the drama begins here. The rumor in Jerusalem is that Paul is teaching Jews. Notice it's not about Gentiles. It's about Jews, that Paul is telling Jews that they should not follow the customs of Moses and circumcise their children and, and, and all of these kinds of things. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to note that uh, what is being said is not true, number one, uh, that, that that's not what Paul was teaching. Paul was, uh, remember, he came to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 for clarity on how the Gentiles to, were to respond relating to the Jews but he was not teaching Jews uh, these things. What has gone on in Jerusalem is thousands of people have gotten saved. Thousands of Jews have come to Christ. But here's the reality. They have not come out of Judaism. They're still somewhat stuck and wrapped up in this religious practices. How many of you came out of like a legalistic background where it was all about keeping laws and rules and all of these kinds of things? You know how difficult it is, even if you've been walking with Jesus now for, you know, 20, 30 years, how difficult it is to unengrain those things. These guys are, the, the church is still fairly new. 
people are getting saved on a regular basis. And what's interesting about it is they're still going to the temple. They're still sacrificing animals. They're still following the, the rites and the rituals of Judaism, not, not in the same way that they were, but they were still doing these things. And they were, it says here, zealous for the law. That means they were ready to fight for the law. Like they were passionate for the law. And, um, you know, I, I think in our day and age, I would say that we're, we've lost all reverence for the law in some way, shape, or form. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But, but understand what the law is. The law is God's standard. It's not to say that, you know, we're, we, well, we don't have to live like that at all. Actually, what will happen if you're really living the gospel life is you will live like that. It just won't be legalistic. You won't be checking boxes. You'll just be naturally doing these things. We're not, we're not called to just have a checklist sort of Christianity where we're like, read my Bible, check. Okay, memorize some verses, check. You know, go to church, check. Tell somebody about Jesus, check. That's called Mormonism or Jehovah Witnessism. That's not Christianity. It's legalism. We're free to live our lives. But what I will tell you is when you press into the Lord and you live for the Lord, and you live in the, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will naturally follow the law. You will naturally live out these things. You won't have idols before you. You'll, God will be the center of your life. You know, you won't defame him. You'll give time to him. All of these kinds of things. You won't lie, steal, or cheat. You know, you won't do these things. Why? Because you're walking in the Spirit, and the Spirit walks contrary to the flesh. But you'll do that naturally. These people were in process, I like to call it. Do you know there's people in the church today that are in process? And that's why we should be careful at the way that we handle them. That we should be really, really careful in, in the way that we respond to people who are coming out of situations that we know nothing about. That we should be gracious to them. You know, I, I, you, you think about, well, like, yeah, this person got saved, but they're, they're still... Um, you know, living in this particular manner. It's like, dude, they, they, they're still walking with the Lord. They're, they're still trying to learn about Jesus and what it means to be a Christian, all this kind of stuff. How about you be a little gracious to them? And so that's what was happening in Jerusalem is people were still walking in the law and all of this kind of stuff, uh, you know, and, and James and the brothers in Jerusalem now are going, okay, we have a problem because there's a rumor floating around that Paul is teaching against these things, which is a problem. It's not just a problem with the Jews who aren't saved, but it's also a problem with the Jews who are saved. It's a problem with both of these sets of people. And so how do we handle this? And um, look at what it says in verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented 
for each, of, uh, each one of them. So Paul proceeds to do what they tell him to do. Here's what I'll tell you is be careful about doing what other people tell you to do. Uh, there is a wisdom in a multitude of counselors sometimes. Uh, sometimes what the Lord is calling you to do will not match up with what other people are telling you to do. And so who do you, who do you obey? The Lord. You walk in accordance with what the Lord is telling you to do. Uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation when we come to this area of Scripture, like, are they telling him to do the right thing? Like, they're telling him to live, to give this perception that he's living by the law, like he uh, is observing the law. Paul is actually still doing that, though. Like, he's coming to Jerusalem with, under a Nazarite vow himself already. So he's still doing some of this stuff. I guess the way I see this is that they're saying, hey, um, rather than just go full force in rejecting what's being said, let's just demonstrate it by how you live. Let's just go and show them that you're not averse to the law. You're not saying that the law is wrong uh, in, in the sense of, you know, it is in the sense of being saved, but not necessarily in the sense of observance. And so there was flexibility, and Paul, he does that. And, and Paul is somebody who's staunch against the law. Like when you read the book of Galatians, you'll see this. Like throughout the entire book, read the book of Romans. It's all about how we're not under the law, we're under grace. And yet in this moment, he yields to the counsel of James and the brothers in Jerusalem. And um, he does what they say. And so they, he takes these four guys. And Paul is required to pay for them. They have, there's a sacrifice involved in this. They have to, um, you know, offer an animal. Numbers chapter 6 speaks about this, relating to the Nazarite vow. They got to get a haircut. Man, haircuts aren't cheap in Jerusalem at this point. You know, you got to get your haircut. So he's going to provide for these four men and himself, which is costing him, uh, you know, money, but it's also sending a statement to the believers in Jerusalem that Paul isn't at all saying these things. He's not saying these things at all. But as it relates to the Gentiles, it's a different story. Paul would teach the Gentiles, hey, you don't have to live like a Jew. You don't have to circumcise your children. You don't have to do any of these things. And in fact, James tells us right here uh, what, what was required of the Gentile. That they sent a letter to Paul and Barnabas when they walked out that day that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed uh, to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That was the requirement, but it was specific to the Gentiles because that was the issue. When a Gentile got saved in the early church, there were Jews that would come alongside them and say, you need to live like a Jew. And Paul simply said, no, that's not true. But he's following the advice of the elders here. Why do you think he would do that? You know that he stands, uh, really, ultimately, he, he's, he's saying the law doesn't play necessarily a role in Christianity at all, other than you'll just naturally do these things. But the ceremonial law, all of these, the sacrifices, they all point us to Jesus anyway. Why would Paul do this? I think it's for one reason, and it's because Paul has a, a, a heart for lost people, in particularly lost Jews. 
He has a heart for them. He wants to do what he can to open up a door to minister to them. Why would I say that? Because Paul writes about this, inspired by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to what it says in verses 19 through 23. This is Paul speaking. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Listen, though not being, under, being, not being myself under the law, that I might win some of those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. To all, I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let me ask you a question. How far are you willing to go for the sake of the gospel? How far are you willing to bow? How far are you willing to yield for the sake of the gospel, that God would be able to reach people through your sacrifice? Paul is saying, I'm willing to do whatever I need to do outside of sinning. I'm willing to, you know, become whatever I need to become in the moment in order to reach people. Well, that seems a little strange. Aren't we supposed to be who we are? Don't you think Jesus was like that? Don't you think Jesus walked into a room and people could relate to him? Why? Because he made himself relatable. He didn't, he didn't say like, hey, you, I expect you to become, uh, you know, like me, and I'm single-minded. No, Jesus adapted to the places he went. And Paul adapted to the places we, he went. Do you adapt to the places you go? Are you bendable? Or are you, I am who I am, and if that doesn't work for them, then listen, that's not the heart of, the, of, of a person who, who believe, who's living for the gospel. Man, Lord, would you change our hearts and give us a passion for lost people that we would be willing to yield and to bend for the sake of giving, having an opportunity to share with somebody. You know, rather than, uh, than, than closing doors that perhaps God is opening for us. But we're closing them by how we're responding to these things. That isn't to say that you know, we don't have a backbone. We don't, we don't take a stance or anything like that. But what I know is the Holy Spirit, if you walk in the Holy Spirit, he will show you where to bend. He will show you where to lead. He will show you where to bow. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's like, hey, I have an opportunity. I love my countrymen. I, I want to see people in Jerusalem get saved. And you know what? Because of this um, situation here, he'll have an opportunity, and we're going to see that next week, where he has an opportunity to share the gospel with the very people that persecute him here in Jerusalem. Why? Because he was following the, the direction of the elders and, and James there in the church and doing these things. Well, Paul, Paul uh, not only has a disturbing rumor being spread about him, but then accusations come up of a supposed abomination. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! 
This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people of the uh, against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the uh, tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when, he, when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. This is where the drama gets super wild in Jerusalem here for the Apostle Paul. He's in the temple. He's making it known that his time of purification is over, and the Jews from Asia see him. Isn't that interesting? The Jews from Asia, those from Ephesus there, see Paul, and they start to make serious accusations at him. Not only do they, do they say that he speaks everywhere against the people, against the law and this place, but then they went beyond that and they said he even brings Greeks into the temple area. Man, they, they said that because they saw Paul with Trophimus, who was from Ephesus. They knew him. They knew he was a Gentile. And they supposed that Paul had brought him uh, brought him into the temple area. You know, the temple area was designed that there was a court of Gentiles that was open for the Gentiles to come into. But in that, uh, in that area, there was a wall that separated the rest of the temple from the Gentiles. You couldn't cross that barrier. If you cross that barrier, you're literally going to die. And in fact, it was posted on this little wall there, multiple times, this was the inscription. Here's the, you can see it, in, it was both in Greek and Latin at the time. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone caught who, anyone, anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. That's how serious they were about, you know, Gentiles coming into the temple. Now they're, they've supposed that the Apostle Paul has brought Gentiles into, um, into the temple area. They suppose. Doesn't supposing always get you in trouble? When you suppose somebody's done something? You know, that's an accusation that's not necessarily backed up with truth, right? It's, it's something that you're not sure about, but you're going to say it anyway. Dude, be careful about supposing about people. Here's what I would say. If you have some indication that something is happening in somebody's life, you shouldn't suppose about it. You should just ask them. If the Lord's put it in your, uh, you know, put it on your heart to be concerned about it, then you should ask them about it rather than supposing uh, and spreading, uh, you know, misinformation about a person, which is exactly what's happening here. They supposed he did it. Did he do it? No, he didn't do it. But they supposed that he did. And so this is going to create an entire riot. They start yelling and screaming and creating a huge scene in the temple area. The people, the men of Israel hear this idea that this man is not only speaking against the people and against, you know, the, the city there and against the law, but he's also potentially breached the wall with Gentiles. They go nuts. Hey, you read in the Old Testament about how 
um, emotional the Jews were. Man, when they disagreed with something, they ripped their clothes, they'd throw dust up in the air, and they'd go nuts. Can you imagine what they did here? When they heard that a Gentile entered the temple area, they went nuts. And they grabbed Paul, and they dragged him out, and they were beating him along the way. It doesn't give us a proper understanding until later about how bad they were beating him. They were beating him extremely bad. They were yelling and screaming, and word got to the tribune, who is the the leader responsible from Rome over the temple area. The Romans allowed the Jews to manage the temple area so long as there was peace. But if, but if there became any kind of commotion or chaos or riots or anything like that, then the Romans would get involved. And so there was always a contingency of Roman soldiers that were up above the Temple Mount area on these walls watching to see what was going on, to make sure that the peace was kept. Because guess what? Their lives are on the line if they don't keep the peace. And so they hear about this commotion happening. They rush down to the Temple Mount area, and they find Paul being beaten, and as soon as the Jews see the Romans coming, they stop. They stop doing this. Here's the interesting part about this. Do you know that Paul could have said at any moment, I'm a Roman citizen, and none of this, everything would have been over. And in fact, what would have happened is the Roman soldiers then would have pulverized that crowd. The the tables would have turned. But he did not do that. He knew that the Lord was in doing something in the midst here. And he's going to use that card at some point, but he doesn't use it here. He's waiting. He's waiting for the Lord. And, and so when they see him, uh, they stop beating him. This brings us to our final point where the prophetic word is actually fulfilled here. Verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when, listen to this, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him, where have you heard those words before? Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus right here. The same way. He's silent re- relating to the accusations that are being tossed at him. He's not trying to defend himself. He, he's being beaten and brutalized, and they're calling for his death. Away with him. You know, uh, the same crowd. Probably some of the same people that said this about Jesus were here in this crowd. The tribune is trying to get, make some sense of what's happening. He wants to understand this. He cares less about the Apostle Paul. It's not about protecting him or anything like that. The only thing he cares about is bringing peace into the situation. So he wants to understand why this happened so it doesn't happen again. So he starts to ask questions to the crowd, and the crowd starts spitting off all of this stuff. It's it's not, he can't make any sense of what's being said here relating to why this happened. So he says, I'm going to ask the guy that was being beaten up why he was being beaten up. So he takes Paul to the barracks, probably the Antonia Fortress there in the Temple, uh, Temple Mount area, and uh, is going to bring him inside. But when they get to the stairs, it says that he, Paul couldn't even stand. He couldn't carry himself up the stairs because he had be, been beaten so badly. 
by this crowd. Paul was shackled. The prophetic word of God was fulfilled right here relating to what Agabus and all of the rest of the prophecies relating to the drama that Paul would face when he got there. He would be imprisoned. The prophetic word uh, fulfilled the afflictions. Obviously, he was beaten and such. Paul was chained with two chains, one on each probably wrist, and he was chained to a soldier as they were carrying him off to the barracks. And um, that, that's often the way that they would chain somebody. The prophetic word of God came to pass relating to the apostle Paul. What's interesting about this is uh, next week we'll see that the drama continues, but Paul is given an opportunity to share the gospel with the very people that just uh, beat and brutalized him. And he takes that opportunity. He asks for it. Think about this. I want you to keep this in mind as the Apostle Paul is bloodied and bruised up and already, you know, swelling and all of this kind of stuff. And he, say, and he will tell them next week in our text, he'll say, let me address the crowd. Like he's not concerned about the things that he just went through. He's concerned about the lost people in the culture and helping them understand that Jesus came for them. And it's going to be the first time that actually we see Paul share his testimony outside of Acts chapter 9, where this is one of the few times that we see it shared in the scriptures in general. But he will share with this crowd that he can relate to them. Paul was one of these people. He was, an ang- he was part of the angry mob at one point that persecuted the church and pushed the church out of Jerusalem. He persecuted Christians. He understands the mentality, but he has a heart for these people. The moral of the story here is don't go to Jerusalem. Not really. That's not, that's not, the, not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is although we live in a world full of drama, you know, we can... Uh, navigate through it, and it can be used for the glory of God in some way if we will allow the Lord to direct us in the midst of these things. We're not promised a drama-free life until we get to heaven. Until then, we need to be ready. We have an adversary who is seeking to devour us, to create drama in our life. He is the author of chaos. He is the author of violence and deceit. He's a liar, and he will cause rumors and accusations to discredit you. And he will even use some of the closest people near you to do these things. I tell you this morning, stay the course. Stay the course in the middle of all of the drama. Listen, the enemy knows his time is short. The prophetic word of God is about to be fulfilled relating to him. And he knows this. So stay in character when the drama comes. Don't allow the circumstances to pull you into your old life. Stand in the spirit of God. Be who God is calling you to be, uh, you know, and he'll use it in ways that you can't imagine. So do your best when it comes to drama. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.